Hello. Welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall and today we'll be looking at In the Bazaars of Hyderabad by Sarojini Naidu. Now, before I get into details about the life and work of Sarojini Naidu, I just wanted to say a quick apology to anyone who is a regular listener and was expecting this podcast on Saturday. I'm uploading it on a Sunday. I won't waste your time with excuses. I'll just say that uh, the time I would have spent preparing and reading my, po- you know, recording my podcast, I spent in a in a battle with a blockage in the kitchen sink, a battle that I ultimately lost. So while that still hasn't been fixed and I'm having to engage the services of a professional plumber, I, um, yeah, I was delayed for by 24 hours, but I'm recording it now. So hooray, let's get into this. So yes, um, Sarojini Naidu was a, a, a poet who is both a sort of, well, I guess a, a poet of colonial and post-colonial times in India. She was the daughter of um, her mum was a poet and her dad was a scientist and a philosopher and an educator. I think he started a, a college in Hyderabad as well. So she was, you know, she was she was part of a Brahmin caste at the time. And while they were still living under the cosh of British colonialism, uh, the Brahmin caste obviously was seen as one of a higher caste. So as far as that sort of caste and class system of India went, as well as just obviously the background and the wealth, she was very well off. Um, also, it also helps to have a, you know, a philosopher uh, on one side, a philosopher and scientist on one side and a poet on the other side of your family, you're going to get a really good education that way as well. And she certainly was all that. She excelled at her school studies. She ended up writing a play at one point. I think this is when she was at the University of Madras. And this is when she was not even 20. She wrote a play. The play did very well. And she won a scholarship to study in England she ended up going to king's college london and followed that by going to cambridge so she did brilliantly when she was in 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 england and she obviously excelled from in all of her studies from childhood up to uh, when she was a student so this is already you know this is a whatever her background this is obviously a very smart and brilliant woman so she started writing poetry when she was in her teens and she was very influenced by the romantics and so writing in English influenced by the romantics obviously there are massive thousands of years of poetical tradition in India while people in you know the same the countries that gave us the Keatses and the Shelleys and the Byrons and um, and the Goethe's or wherever I mean most of these guys were just living in huts with roofs made out of their own poo when um, India was 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 one of the highest cultural powers in the world um, and still is so we we have so, so as I and actually that's worth a little detour now because I've, this is the first Indian poet I've looked at in Rusty Sonnets. Now um, the the one hand tied behind my back with the choice of poets that I do in this podcast is that I choose poets who write originally in the English language. So I don't deal with translations because that has its own issues. Normally the, the translations I I use if I was to use translations even if the poet themselves was out of public domain the translation might not be because most of them are quite recent so there's that 
um, but, but also a lot of Indian poets write in their own languages. A lot of Chinese and Eastern poets wrote in their own languages. So, so having those poets writing in English, it's it's not. While there are there is a later generation, obviously, of of, of Indian poets and novelists writing in English, we're having to kind of look sort of back to the beginning of the twentieth century and the end of the nineteenth century to find these poets. So back to her she's in england she's studying at all these universities and she falls into friendship with quite a few poets she gets to know quite a few poets when she's included in, in england and she gets many admirers um but one of them is edmund goss and so he he had a look at her poetry and he was he was very charmed by her style by her obvious lyrical skill but he wasn't as impressed with the fact that these all seemed to be pastiches of romantic poems even romantic poets even down to the details of traditional english countryside subjects that were used in romantic poetry so edmund goss told her hey you need to to, to write you know you're an indian poet you need to write about your own country you need to uh, bring bring all of us just to, to bring us people in this cold west the, the the warmth and the sunshine of 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 back home so you know he she needed to have an end of you know he said use your own style use your own style to write about india so she did start writing about india and then she developed quite a following and you know she had fans including william butler yates and so the poem that we'll look at is quite a famous poem by her but um one thing i will say is that of course that while she was admired as a poet um, as as is the case of a lot of Indian women, she was sort of exoticized in that admiration. So be it the way that she dressed in vibrant colours or, or the way that, you know, they, they, they spoke of her poetry shedding lights into the darker corners of the world. So horrible colonial mindset at work there in how she was admired. And sort of this can carry on. This has even carried on in the 20, late 20th century and maybe even the 21st century where where Eastern women are still sort of fetishized in certain ways or exoticized. So her own poetry, I think, is quite interesting. I read a few critical texts in the sense that there's almost a dialectic at work, a dialectic almost being about something where two opposite sides ultimately form a synthesis. And so the synthesis she formed was that obviously she, she grew up in India admiring the romantic poets. She went over to England and was told, stop writing like the romantic poets, write like it write as an Indian poet. But of course, her style and the way that she was guided and mentored by these English poets was very Western in nature. So while her subject matter, while her lens of attention turned back to India, it was very much the fact that she was looking at India from perhaps that Western viewpoint, be it the lens of the Western style that she was using, or maybe just just the way in which she was instructed or this, you know, this post-colonial mindset. So, so while her work is thought of in one sense as Indian, and there's certainly there's we'll, we'll get into this in a second. Her poetry was part of India claiming its own identity again, away from the um, control of of the British. But it was the work that was written by someone who grew up in India, and then was educated in the West, and then sort of returned to India. It was a sort of poetry of a return that that, that there was that she used Western tools, including obviously the English language, 
in order to examine and explore her own culture. So she became, uh, she did many things in her life apart from being a poet. And one of the biggest things was, was as a campaigner and an advocate for Indian independence. And she was part of big part of the Indian independence movement. She was friends and colleagues with Mahatma Gandhi. She worked with him. Um, and she had, I guess, quite a um, an interesting relationship with him where she seemed to be quite irreverent of Gandhi um, in his company. Um, her nickname for him was Mickey Mouse. <laughs> And she said, this is this is such a burn, right? Ready for this one. She also said it costs a lot to keep Gandhi poor. <sighs> oh, ho, 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 ho. that is a good one. That is a really good one. And it seems like he very much liked being ribbed by her as well. So so she 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 became a prominent figure in the Indian independence struggle. And ultimately, um, she became, after independence, she became the first governor of Uttar Pradesh. She was also a campaigner for women's issues, particularly in getting women involved in the struggle for Indian independence. I think I've said nearly enough before I introduced the poem. Um, oh, yeah, you know, when she went to King's College, by the way, she was 15. 15 when she went to King's College. So, um, so, so her scholarship, you know, that's how young she was. She'd written a hit play. So yeah, it makes me sick. <laughs> I'll put that in the same file as Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein when she was 19. Just, just looking at it and going, oh, why am I doing it? Why am I writing? What's the blooming point? What's the point? I, I, I suppose I can look at, is it, is it Monet who uh, started painting very late and was a lawyer for a while? I suppose I can look at those files and say, no, you can be brilliant when you're a bit older as well. But uh, so we've looked over Edmund Goss um, names. OK, let's get back to this idea about her writing and how whether it fits in with her, the other aspects of her role as an advocate of Indian independence. And so so she was she, an interesting the name that she was given. And I'm not sure who gave her this name, whether it was a name that she was given from from Indian people or whether it was the sort of English um it, 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 her, it, her, let's say her English elders um, who gave this name to her but she was called a nightingale of India which I find really interesting it's sort of obviously the nightingale is a beautiful song but the nightingale is so evocative within poetry tradition I mean this is a poet who grew up loving the romantics and of course a few weeks ago we like we looked at Ode to a Nightingale by John Keats and the the, the nightingale in a way is exoticized in Keats's poem because it sings this pure song that that um, he struggles to see if he can put it into poetry or not or how language sort of wakes him up to himself and there's a primal sort of eternal beauty to the song of a nightingale so in that sense again if it has is a name that comes from the from the English is it something that is perhaps patronizing in that sense, sort of typical of a certain that her again, that exoticizing of her? I'm not sure. And she was certainly very sort of very modest, let's say, about her own poetry in her own time. And that uh, she could add her own exotic flower or something to the fine garland of English verse. Um, she said something like that. I can't remember the exact quote. And I've read other papers where 
about that, that because her poetry kind of contains this western influence something's been made of it that she didn't in these later parts of her life when she became a governor and became more politically active her poetic voice fell silent so it's something that sort of belongs to the first decades of her life rather than the later decades and um so I'm not sure how to answer that, whether perhaps this idea of something that she'd taken from the West in the end, if the, the Western influences were so imbued within her work that she had to cast them aside in order to fully immerse herself into a completely Indian culture. Be that as it may. Um, the poem we're going to look at, I think, is quite an interesting poem in the sense that when you first listen to it, parts of it sound quite simple and sing-songy well it's sing-songy in some some ways because it manages to handle a very diff, difficult kind of meter we'll look at that in a minute so and and does it brilliantly but also that has a call and response quality which you'll hear in a minute of the poem as well to the point that this poem is used a lot in Indi education in india at least it's a big poem in indian education and one thing that people normally will do when they're learning this poem is they'll do a sort of skit where people will play the roles of the different voices in the poem, students will. So one more little detail before I read it out, and that is, so this poem was written in a climate where, um, I'm going to more detail about this afterwards, but it was written in a climate where, in the, I mean, this was written in 19, or it was published in 1912, so English, so Indian independence didn't happen until 1947. So we're quite a long way away now, I can't remember if this was at the time, but at one point there was a boycott of English goods of, uh, and, to, and, to, and for an effort to people to try and buy Indian goods instead. And so in some ways, this, this, this we'll look at and see if this was about that, this poem, because she could not publish pro-independence poems in newspapers or wherever. Um, was this a way, was this a work of propaganda? I think we'll look at that as well. OK, so I think it's now time to read the poem. In the Bazaars of Hyderabad by Sarojini Naidu What do you sell, O oh you merchants? Richly your wares are displayed Turbans of crimson and silver Tunics of purple brocade Mirrors with panels of amber Daggers with handles of jade What do you weigh, O oh ye vendors? Saffron and lentil and rice What do you grind, O oh ye maidens? Sandalwood, henna, and spice. What do you call, O oh ye peddlers, chessmen, and ivory dice? What do you make, O oh ye goldsmiths, wristlet, and anklet, and ring? Bells for the feet of blue pigeons, frail as a dragonfly's wing. Girdles of gold for dancers, scabbards of gold for the king. What do you cry, O oh ye fruit men? Citron, pomegranate, and plum. What do you play, O oh musicians? Sitha, sarangi, and drum. What do you chant, O oh magicians? Spells for aeons to come. What do you weave, O oh ye flower girls? With tassels of azure and red. Crowns for the brow of a bridegroom. Chaplets to garland his bed. Sheets of white blossoms, new garnered to perfume the sleep of the dead.
So that was in the bazaars of Hyderabad by Sarojini Naidu. Um, I apologise immediately just so far as well for any, especially for any Indian listeners, for any, whether they're living in India or whether they're descended from Indian families or whether people who are just um, experts in, in the culture that I'm speaking of, because I am the furthest thing from an expert in, 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 in the culture that I'm speaking of. Um, so for any words I've got wrong, for any pronunciations I've got wrong, and for every howler facts that I might have got wrong as well, I apologise now and I apologise in advance as well because I'm sure we're not out the, out the woods of my incompetence just yet. So let's look at this poem. Normally I will do a couple of runovers of the poem. So the first thing I, you know, I look at is what is the argument of the poem? If there is something being said in the poem with all the fancy highfalutin in our poetic language... If there was a way of writing out the poem as a piece of normal prose that was simply offering the information and the attitudes and the opinions of the poem, then what would it sound like? And I don't think that's too difficult to do here. We we have a poem which features a call of response. There is perhaps the voice of Naidu herself asking all the questions about the market. And she seems to be um, travelling through the market or the bazaars of Hyderabad and asking questions of the merchants who they are and what do they sell and they give their answers and that spells out in different variations the content of the poem thank you for listening to rusty sonnets goodbye but there's more going on than this isn't there i've already said how the how schools have used the call and response aspect of the poem in order to create sort of skits for the poem so if we look at the poem there we we have this series of of, of questions and the peddlers answering it now i asked earlier just before i read the poem is this a work of propaganda and it's it, i think it's a, it's an interesting question to ask i think it is undoubtedly a work of propaganda but the mood of the poem changes near the end and so while you're looking at the first let's say um three to four stanzas out of the six stanzas yeah sure you could say this is a propaganda poem. Why is it a propaganda poem? Because it's the, the the British are completely absent. They're completely absent from this poem. From every stanza, we have um, just references to Indian culture, um, Hyderabad as well, which is a sort of multicultural culture because it's uh, while it is a has a, a Hindu majority in in that city it's um it has a large muslim minority as well so it is seen as a sort of mixed muslim and hindu city and so some of these um references are references to those differences of culture as well they're not just one sort of monolithic indian monoculture running through it but of course a lot of these these images are familiar images that us westerners i guess would associate with india and it's interesting, especially for those of us that live in London, we might might associate some of these images with things that we know from London as well. If we go to markets, maybe in I've no idea what Brick Lane is like now, but I'm pretty sure it's more about rich people and, and um, pretentious artists than it is about Indian people these days. But um, maybe Whitechapel areas like that, I think we still we still have this sort of aspects of Indian culture, especially um, places like Southall in west london as well so here are all the cries but, but okay and again listen you know the, the um the 
the beginning of the poem, I said that that uh, this was a a sly independence poem as well because it comes across in the backdrop of a boycott of British goods, and of course, this is a poem completely about all the wonderful Indian stuff that you can buy in um, Hyderabad, which is the the city of her birth as well. I didn't say that at the beginning. So, as I said, the first four stanzas, first three to four stanzas, it's quite a general. Well, actually, let's let's just say the first two stanzas, just very much a listy poem of all these different aspects of a society. So, what what are they displaying? Turbans of crimson and silver is the first thing we hear about the wares. Tunics of purple brocade, mirrors with panels of amber, daggers with handles of jade. Um, and then, then we move on to food in the second stanza: saffron and lentil with rice. And then uh, sandalwood, henna and spice, these other aspects for spices of the Orient. And then chessmen and ivory dice as well from the peddlers. So we have games, we have food and we have spices and scents as well. So we go, we go. And here's an interesting thing. The third stanza is all about what the goldsmiths say in response. And it's when I first read the poem, let's just say it's all just very familiar perhaps and jolly and the, the meter is very well handled the imagery is interesting but i think the first two stanzas of the poem for me weren't massively remarkable there were the, the images the imagery seemed to demonstrate the great variety of things that are in this market but i'm not sure what kind of statement it was making otherwise apart from of course this implicit statement of it as a work of propaganda for indian independence but there's a really there's a few really striking images later on in the poem. So from the third stanza, what do ye make, O ye goldsmiths? Wristlet and anklet and ring, and then bells for the feet of blue pigeons, frail as a dragonfly's wing. Now that's a really interesting image. One because I'm not sure what it refers to. Is is the pigeon's foot as frail as a dragonfly's wing? In which case, why are you putting bells on it? Um, or are the bells themselves? I've got a feeling it's the bells themselves, aren't they? The bells are frail as a dragonfly's wing being put on the feet of pigeons. Such a beautiful series of images there that, that are so evocative in so many ways. Um, and then girdles of gold for dancers and scabbards of gold for the king. So we have girdles for dancers and then scabbards for the king. Now, for a second, I thought, wait a minute. I thought this was some kind of ignoring the british type of poem what king are we talking about but um there were there, there was a series of sort of indian kings as well um so so some indian kings were sort of these these were called the nizams if i remember right they were sort of a dynasty that ruled this part of the region um and so um they were kind of i don't know if they were seen as sort of puppet kings as well to the colonials i think a lot they did like the idea of kind of having um representative um kings within within their regions but they were still very much um ruled by the british in that sense and um there wasn't much need for them when governors were brought in after indian independence so that says something else as as well but again, so the king that's being referenced isn't a British king. It's, it is an Indian king of the, of the region. Indian regions are massive, probably bigger than, than Britain anyway. So after these interesting images about scabbards for the king and the, the, the bells that are frails of butterfly's wings, which are placed on the feet of pigeons. Now, this is a culture that obviously, I mean, a Hindu culture especially, that respects animals 
in a different way than we do in the Brit in Britain, especially pigeons. We ain't too fond of pigeons, are we, in Britain, especially in London. So um, that's a very Anglo-centric way of putting things, being that I have listeners from all over the world. Apologies about that. I'm sorry to, you know, there we go. That's the colonial mentality right there. And uh, my family are Irish. So um, we weren't that colonial, were we? We didn't really get up to a lot of colonial skullduggery in Ireland. But um, there we go. I've grown up in this country and I guess the colonial mentality has, has rubbed off very well on me. So we have another list in the fourth stanza. Why, what do you cry, O ye fruitmen? Citron, pomegranate and plum. What do you play, O musicians? And then sitar, sarangi and drum. What do you chant, O magicians? Spells for aeons to come. Love it. Okay. Magicians just hanging out at the market there. And it's the final stanza. I think that it... I could say it almost stops being, a, maybe it is a propaganda poem because it is transferring these ideas into an Indian setting. But I, I, I feel that here's, here's a poet that was in the final stanza, someone who was influenced by the romantics because amidst all the hubbub and life that appears in this market, just after we've heard from the magicians chanting their spells for aeons to come, we meet the flower girls and their weaving and the and what they're weaving are crowns for the brow of the bridegroom, chaplets to garland his bed, sheets of white chrism blossoms new garnered to perfume the sleep of the dead. So, in this final stanza, sex and death pop up, just pop up <laughs> at the very end. So we have a the, the culture of the market, the food, the spice, the music. But I guess for the magicians, I don't know if that signifies religion as well. But right at the end of it, amidst the hubbub, is sex when we think about bridegrooms and the bed, the bed of the garlanded bed of a bridegroom, the, the you know the marital bed. I'm, I'm sure there's something about that. There must be an aspect of sex involved there. Um, and then death, just straight on to death. Um, and it is the bed again the bed sort of has these two meanings there's the bed of the bridegroom but then then all of a sudden sheets of white blossoms new garnered to perfume the sleep of the dead so these are white garlanded scented flowers to place on gravestones uh, to perfume the sleep of the dead and it's really so i find that it's, it's sort of a poem that's so vibrant and about life ends with death Almost as if that these are the energies that keep everything moving. Almost primal energies, I guess, that keep all of us moving. Um, if we sort of go to sort of Darwinism, just the idea of, of survival and reproduction, the two things that govern everything, our sexual drives and our drives to avoid death or to accept death. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe there's a life in this market because death is accepted. I talked a lot about accepting death in last week's podcast, so I don't really want to bore everyone uh, you know, I, you all know I love going on about death, I, as if, as if I've really come to an understanding of death, and that when my moment has come, I won't be sort of screaming and shouting, "New life, give me more life now, 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 now!" Do I have to drink the blood of a, of an innocent or something like that? I'll just do it, please. Just give me anything, sacrifice, whatever. I want to live. I'm sure I'll be like that. I'm talking about me again. Let's get back onto this beautiful poem. So I, I just think that's a really, a really, I, I think that's my favourite part of a poem, actually, is the final stanza. Um, maybe it's because I've become desensitised to poems about certain cities in the East and about how lively their markets are. 
Um, it's a trope that I've seen quite a lot of, even though maybe it wasn't so much of a trope back when it was written. But I really think it transforms. The poem transforms just with the imagery at the end of the poem and how death and sex are called into it. Now, let's look at the meter of the poem. Let's 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 look at the scansion and see how it works. You might have noticed there's quite a sing-songy quality, almost a nursery rhyme quality to it. So the lines are, if you're interested, shall I, shall I give you a dry and joyless summary of the lines before I speak a little about, about, about what that means and, and why it's relevant? Um, it is written in dactylic trimeter uh, with a with a um, with a trochaic substitution at the end of the alternating first line and a catalectic line which is the every second alternating line of each six line stanza there are there are um, five stanzas in all so what does all that gubbins mean what does all that gubbins mean dactylic has that certain quality um like a waltz bum 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 so what do you sell oh ye merchants so the dactyl is a stress syllable followed by two unstressed syllables. But at the end of the first line and the third line and the fifth line, rather than having a stressed syllable and two unstressed syllables, it has a stressed syllable and one unstressed syllable, which is a spondy. So bum bum. So yes, bum 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 bum. Um, it's sort of something, you know, it's a very sing-songy type of rhythm. Oh, and by the way, catalectic just means that the spondee, so that final metric foot in the second alternating line, it has, it's, it rather, it, it misses out, it chops off the un unstressed syllable. So it's just the stressed syllable at the beginning of the spondee. And so that's what we call a catalectic line um, because it's missing that last syllable. Um, it's so so it gives that little pause as well so it has a sing-songy musical quality and that totally fits in with the subject matter of the poem anyway I think it's not very conversational and writing especially in dactylic meter is quite tricky it's quite artificial it doesn't sound like normal language it is the kind of rhythm that you'd think the person was perhaps singing or at least speaking in very rhythmic stylized language but that that totally makes sense because it's about the energy of the market. It's about the music of the market. It's about the vibrance. Oh, that's a disgusting. I, you know, Western people, when they talk about like other cultures from the East and they use the word vibrance, don't they? It's just like, yeah. Anyway, um, I don't like using that term vibrance. It's what posh white poets say about poets that aren't posh and white. So that's the meter of it and i think it really really again it evokes that kind of energy and it's a difficult meter to write in as well dactylic trimeter it's trimeter because it's three beats per line three stress syllables so two of the feet are dactylic and then the final feet is spondaic with a missing syllable in every second alternating line which makes it catalectic i keep threatening to do that meter and rhythm one i will do it at some point but you see i'm struggling right now with all my sync disasters to even get this thing in on a time so there you go um but i think that's that's enough for my analysis of the poem i hope that was illuminating for you um it's a bit of a shorter episode because i've been approaching an hour for a lot of these episodes and i think at some point i just need to sort of chill out and bring it in a bit earlier 
just to give you guys a bit of a break as well listening to me waffle on so i think i've said enough about in the bazaars of hyderabad but it's a poem i think of many many qualities i think it still contains that quality of being a poem written by um, an indian poet who has gone to the west continued their study and their literature study in the west and then returned and applied some of these western ideas and techniques to their own culture i think that is evident here in this reading but um i, I also think it's a slyly propaganda driven driven poem while at the same time it's just a funny strange you know to, to bring in death at the end of it now maybe it is maybe a person from this culture will tell me no that's that's all propaganda too that's all part of the culture that's actually what separates us from the british might be what's said you know but we do accept death in our culture um especially well when you think of people um again stuff i've seen the documentaries because i've never been to india but i think even the idea of the dead the, the dead aren't hidden in india as they are here um, especially with sort of burnings on pyres and stuff like that. Death isn't as sort of kept away from everything in India, as far as I know, as it is in in, in uh, Britain and Europe. So that's enough of that for, um, for, for, for of me discussing that poem and analysing that poem. It's time to end all pretense and academic rigour because it is time for me to wander off on one, which is an acronym that spells out woo and i'm rubbish at saying woo but someone who's really great at saying woo is rick flair thank you very much rick flair i am now wandering off on one i was going to wander off on one because i've already hinted at the idea of markets in london and whether i i this was this is what this poem reminds me of this is a poem in which someone has spoken about a local market in reference to an independent struggle from a from a governing colonial power and i almost feel that a poem like that could be written today or maybe 10 years ago i'll say so in a while anyway in the sense that the the the, the big there maybe there aren't big colonial powers now at all there are just massive corporate powers instead and living in an English city, as many other people who live in English cities and even towns may know, I, I still, despite all the choice that I have, I still end up going to my big corporate supermarket to get a lot of my groceries. And I think there have been times where I have actually tried to source more of my... I remember I think I did it one day as a little experiment to myself, walking about my local neighbourhood to try and source all of the ingredients for that night's dinner without visiting a big corporate supermarket or even the um, smaller almost as corporate supermarkets and it was really difficult I, I must have walked about 10 miles here and there to get all the different ingredients for this meal so it is very tricky but our cultures have sort of built themselves maybe capitalism has allowed this to happen to um that, that, that you know it's more about rather than supporting small businesses we welcome come in corporations and we give them tax breaks and then the justification given is of course that they give jobs but of course they give jobs if all the local places are closing down now that means could i write a poem about one of my local markets for instance brixton market could i write a poem about brixton market and could that poem be 
something that's perhaps a reaction against these big corporate things that are driving into us? Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to say no in a few ways. Firstly, I've got actually got a closer market to me than, than Brixton Market, and it's a very posh Sunday market. And it really is. It's not far from Brixton. And yet you walk through it and you think, we, we where are we now? Are we in Hampstead? Are we in some posh part of London? But no, it's somewhere that's a couple of, not even a couple of miles, about a mile and a bit, maybe less from Brixton. And it's just a, a, a posh market for posh people. Now it talks about the locally sourced ethical produce that, that it has. But at the same time, I feel that all the poor people are sort of excluded from this great show of local solidarity. And it's similar in Brixton. Brixton's an interesting place because um, gentrification is happening in Brixton and Brixton Market. I mean, there's there's sort of there's a road called um, Atlantic Road, which becomes Railton Road. And the the people used to think Brixton Market. Well, Brixton Market is basically a series of little market institutions that are either side of Atlantic Road. And things have changed. Things have changed. One side of it is still quite a bit based on cash and carries. And there's still some stalls around other parts. But then in another part, in a building that's called Brixton Village, it's really changed. And people have noticed this as well. And um, it's more single origin coffee bars and even champagne and fromage shops. And you almost notice a kind of I remember people saying using this word maybe about maybe even 10 years ago when these differences started creeping up that there was a kind of cultural apartheid in Brixton that hadn't really been noticed because Brixton market one big people used to speak I think there's 40 something languages maybe more I don't know maybe 100 I don't know but Brixton market people pointed out that there are more languages sort of spoken within just the radius of Brixton market than in some entire cities so the Brixton market has always been a cultural melting pot and yet one culture seems to come in, which is the posh English people or the posh Westerners. And now they must immediately be separated from this <laughs> this multicultural market. Their culture is more like a monoculture. And I find that's a good description of how gentrification works. Brixton has always been a melting pot of loads of cultures coming together. And yet gentrification seems to be a case of when one culture comes in and they just can't melt, can they? They seem to kind of have to build up a fortress, which is normally a fortress which is governed by just having very expensive prices and so knowing the locals won't come knocking. So this is why I'm saying the writing about a local market might not be this great. And I think the people who go to these little markets, they might think, oh, I'm supporting local businesses. I'm supporting independent businesses. I'm going to this coffee shop rather than supporting Starbucks. And yet on the other end of the scale is if we speak about locals who are maybe the working class people, then um, the, the, there's more chance of them being employed perhaps by the corporation than by the posh shop instead um because there is a certain area degree of social exclusion of the working class let's just say from these well-to-do little markets so i found that really 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 interesting to muse on this idea that can we use a market as a way of of saying up yours to our corporate overlords and i'm not sure we can because the markets themselves are just sort of like, well, like what jobs do all these people who go to the, the the markets you know where do they work do they work in the city do they work for financial institutions are they people that make their money 
from from being very corporate but then a kind of oh i won't spend my i will spend my money locally but i'll only spend my money locally if a business is run by people like me so there be the contradictions and especially the fact because i remember this actually there was actually an anti-gentrification i mentioned brick lane earlier there was an anti-gentrification march down brick lane and people pointed out that they um, didn't smash for tesco but no one's uh if you don't know tesco is a big supermarket chain in britain but tesco don't really gentrify <laughs> tesco opens up in a town and it won't put everyone's rent up um a town can be still quite working class and remain quite working class if a tesco opens there but other kinds of businesses might open there and then it might become a bit more upmarket and then suddenly people's rents will go up and this uh yeah and uh but either way mate this bloody podcast is a strike against corporatism and you can download it on soundcloud spotify and itunes and the other good android podcast clients as well do you see what i mean here if you want to get in contact with me you can either contact me at rustysonnets at gmail.com via email or you can say hello on twitter p-o-e-t-n-i-a-l-l poet nile at twitter.com so at poet nile as the young people of 10 years ago would have said uh but that is all all of it if you want to share this podcast please share it via via your social media via writing a nice review of it on itunes or wherever you can write a review of it um or just telling your mates about it um it's really nice the other day seeing people asking is there a podcast where i can learn about rhythm and meter and all these old poems and and uh, the different poetry movements and just to get a basic understanding of the history of english literature that is taught in universities uh today and that's kind of the intent of this podcast so it's really nice seeing people share this podcast based on those recommendations so that's it for me sorry i was a day late but better than none at all isn't it so um hope you enjoyed it um if you are in any way an expert in the poet that i looked at today in the culture that it's about in the city that it's based on and that i have completely got everything wrong then man i am so happy to be corrected i really am so happy to be corrected um i i i i i don't it's not about being right it's just about knowing stuff so feel free to correct me that's all of it have a good one bye bye <laughs>